So Nathan, have you embraced embraced Pokemon Go? Uh, I played it for three or four days and then thought there are things I'd rather be doing with my phone. I got a Pikachu and therefore I consider the game completed. (laughs) (laughs) Have you done a bit where you go to look at your Pokemon and tap on them? Most of them, you tap on them, they do like a little little dance thing and they make their proper original Game Boy 8-bit pixelated cry. Except for Pikachu. Have you got a Pikachu, Dan? I haven't got a Pikachu. I haven't found one yet. You officially suck at life. I haven't found one yet. I got mine from an egg. I also got a Snorlax from an egg. who weighs something like 700 pounds. I mean, I got every Pokemon I recognise the name of, plus 7,000 Zubats. So I'm not sure what else there is to do. <laughs> Pikachu! <gasps> Pikachu! That is definitely taken straight from the anime. What's that, Dan? You've sneezed. <laughs> that doesn't quite work. It's more. Pikachu! Oh, bless you. This week's episode of Remedial Nerding, the podcast where three nerds force each other to watch something that they really should have already seen. Your friendly neighbourhood nerds this week are Nathan, Dan and me, Paul. Remember, there's no such thing as a bad nerd. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Remedial Nerding. It's the last episode in season two this week for our last outing. It's Howl's Moving Castle. Which, strange enough, revolves around a castle that moves and belongs to a man called Howl. It was a lot more literal than I expected. Yeah. Well, when you told us what it was, and I hadn't looked at any of the titles, I thought it was Howl, as in H-A-L. I'm sorry, I can't do that, Dave. Yeah, not as in Howl at the moon. Calcifer, can you move the castle 60 miles west? I'm sorry, Howl, I can't do that. (laughs) So who getting Nathan to run this one down for us, because Nathan likes these abstract ones. Well, none of us had seen this one, and I think the reason that the, the title is so literal, possibly, is because it is the title of the book it was based on. I, I may have made a slight mistake this week, though. Oh, doesn't sound like something we'd do. Well, it's, it's an error of judgment rather than an error of content. And it's only a minor error of judgment that's probably not really an error at all, but uh, I watched the film, really, really, really enjoyed it, so I bought the audiobook of the book. Oh, right. And listened to that. Much? No, it's awesome. Yeah. It's a really good book. But now I've just spent all the time thinking about how the difference is between the two of them. Oh, you've become the book slapper. Well, no, because <laughs> I like them both and they're different. I don't want... To, my, my error is I don't want to talk about the differences between the book and the film. <laughs> I want to concentrate on the film because I really enjoyed the film. And the film was really good. I can see why they made the changes to the book. They're not minor changes. They're quite big, but... Equally, a lot of the detail is still exactly the same. It's a bit of an odd one. I won't talk about it too much, but I will say for Fiverr, you can't go too far wrong at buying the audiobook for Howl's Moving Castle. I think a lot of the best movie adaptations do that. They keep the spirit and ethos of the book, but just chop out just a few bits, just to save on time and for deviating too much. I mean, one of the major themes of the film is the uh, the war between the two kingdoms that Howl turns out, as we'll come to when we summarise, is kind of working for both sides. In the book, there is no war, and when Howl is out of the castle, he's uh, 
He's not fighting against the war, he's womanising. Hmm. He's also from Wales and a rugby player. Okay. Which isn't in the film. I'm just reading that the book was originally British uh, written, so I imagine it would be quite different in flavour, if nothing else. One thing, though, that they did, or that was going to be difficult to make it into a film, is there is absolutely zero kind of context to the to the book. It could be set in pretty much any time where they have houses and horses, hmm. <laughs> and probably not cars. But other than that, it, there, there's no mention of any kind of technology in the book. So everything, the little steam-powered cars, the flying machines, all Studio Ghibli's creation for the uh, the story. And it fit really well. Yeah, it did. Yeah, the setting was vaguely similar to the Porco Rosso setting in that it's slightly fantastical early 20th century Europe, I guess. Yeah, I couldn't quite make up my mind whether it was supposed to be early 20th century or sort of mid-19th century it yeah. was very steampunk. Yes, it was. Yeah, that's true. And it's in its technology, it was very steampunk. Literally steam-powered cars, ironclad battleships with lots of guns bristling on the side, and weird... Well, they can't even really call them ornithopters. It's like, a, imagine a canoe with a couple of little fans. And I mean, I don't mean propellery-type fans. I mean, you know, Far Eastern ladies' hand fans on the side for lift. And they're flying them around in various sizes. But magic exists, so, you know. Would you say that this film did not satisfy your aviation nerd side, then? Well, it had aviation in it, which will do for me. It also <laughs> has the protagonist turning into a bird and having complete freedom of flight. So uh, <laughs> I can definitely uh, sympathise with that. So we run down Howl's Moving Castle. It might be jerky. Um, I will attempt. Whose story is this? The story's from, told from the viewpoint of Sophie, who is the eldest sister who works in a hat shop and is very shy. She's walking through town when there's some big festival. A couple of weird, rapey soldiers kind of want to show her a good time. Howell casts a magic spell on them and they walk off. He then tries to escort Sophie. They get pursued by some weird tar babies yeah. and go flying over the houses and Howell drops her off in her house. The Witch of the Wastes comes to the hat shop, is rude to Sophie. Sophie tells her to bugger off. So the witch casts a spell, or a curse, onto Sophie, turning into a 90-year-old woman. With the proviso that she can't tell anyone about the curse. Yeah. She literally can't, magically can't. Sophie was very drab-dressing, quiet, and she actually seems to feel like she's a bit more herself as an old woman. But she decides she can't hang around, so she gets some bread and cheese and disappears into the wastes, where Howl's moving castle has been seen near the town. Uh, also note, Sophie doesn't know it was Howell she met, and second note, Howell has got a really bad rep for like stealing girls, pretty girls' hearts. Literally, is the rep that we get. So while she's walking into the mountains, Sophie decides she wants to try and find a walking stick, sees one sticking out of a bush, pulls it out, and it turns out to be a turnip head scarecrow, which has come to life, which scares her at first but then helps her. She then ends up getting to the castle, finding her way in, where she meets, uh, oh, what's his name in the film? Mark. Yeah, he's Michael in the book. <laughs> Michael. Who lives there, and a fire demon called Calcifer. And it turns out the Calcifer basically is a fire demon that provides all the magic to run the castle. So, uh, Sophie strikes up a deal with Calcifer to break the contract that Calcifer has with Howl, and in return, Calcifer will clear the curse that's been placed under Sophie. So Sophie then decides to work, or just stay there under the pretense that she's been hired as the cleaning lady. Which... Nobody disagrees with. To be fair, though, it was a fucking pigsty. <laughs> it was a shell. Really needed the cleaning lady. And then adventure and semi-hilarity and shit. Yeah, so Harold doesn't want to fight for either side in this war because he's got 
Oh, we should probably point out the castle has a magic door which has four settings. One of which is the mobile castle. One of which is uh, Porthaven, and the other one of which is Kingsbury. Porthaven and Kingsbury are on opposite sides of the war, and Howell has personas in both towns, and they both get summoned to the king. Howell thinks it's a trap and sends Sophie to go along as his mother. Sophie then meets the Witch of the Waste again, who has her powers taken away from her and just gets turned into an old woman by Suleiman, the king's advisor. Howell then turns up to protect Sophie, and Suleiman tries to take his power as well. They then run away on one of these flying canoes. With the witch? With the, with the former witch, yeah. Crikey, there is... Are you following so far? Because this it should be making perfect sense if you've done your homework. If not, you might be sitting there thinking, what? I have to admit that my version of the summary did go to hilarity and shoes pretty much. Well, after she got turned into an old woman, but before she found the scarecrow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I might give up on this, this summary. There's too much to summarise. Sophie gets turned into an old woman. She meets Howell. They get attacked. It turns out that Sophie finds out she loves Howell and that she breaks her own curse and they uh, end up together. That That's a very truncated summary, but that is essentially Sophie's story in this. The trouble with this one is that it's not just one person's story. It's Sophie's story. It's Howell's story. Um, no, it's the Witch of the Waste story. I mean, other big plot points is uh, Calcifer, the fire demon, is the source of Howell's power. And it turns out it's the source of his power because he is, in fact, a falling star that Howell made the contract with to to keep him alive. Part of this bargain is that Calcifer has Howell's heart, which the uh, Witch of the Waste tries to get her hands on. But Sophie gives Howell his heart back at the end and keeps Calcifer alive. It's a very interesting movie. It is. I also thought, certainly the first ten minutes, I just thought, wow, this is a really, really good-looking cartoon yeah. as well when sophie's going up into the wasteland i also thought for a second that it had been half done by monty python for the first time you saw the the castle up close <laughs> yeah that was very um oh god what was the animator's name in that terry gillingham terry gilliam yeah um it's very well firstly all put together in a big ornate dirty steel kind of way and also makes a big grotesque face out of the various protrusions all of which move seemingly independently with some mechanical components some semi-organic components and other bits moving very randomly yeah it's not an elegant solution i quite there's so many other things like the fact that the actual inside of the castle is in one of the towns and the others are just kind of magic portals the fourth portal in the door takes you to like a big field of flowers kind of made a bit more sense in the book in that that portal took you to wales <laughs> it does take you to house happy place where you've got a little cottage by a stream with a water wheel. There's a it. really good scene when, I think this is after Howell has kind of refused to get involved in the war, which he later does, but various governments, I did not keep track of quite how many there were, send soldiers to break down his door, basically. And they all succeed, but they all break into empty warehouses. Yeah, one's a completely vacant lot, and the other one's a dishevelled hovel. It's just the door that exists. Exactly, yeah. I feel like that turns up in a lot of fantastical literature. I guess fantasy is the term for that. Yeah, I think that's definitely a trope with a, a door that is magic that someone goes through, someone comes immediately behind and it either goes to a different place or nothing. I suspect it was a Terry Pratchett no- uh, novel, but I'm probably wrong about that, so viewers can write in, that had a story that involved that element with the proviso that it was only doors that are marked employee use only. Do <laughs> <laughs> explain why there's so many of them. Yeah, there's also some time travel dimension to it, which I did not really follow. Yeah, that's when after the house has been, or the castle has been almost completely destroyed, and it's just the door, isn't it? Mm. It just opens to the black place, and the ring that Howe's given her is showing her where 
how it is and it takes her into the dark and she runs through that and it, somehow it takes her back in time to the field and she sees um young how with this falling star making making his faustian bargain yeah i wasn't quite clear if that was actually back in time and those and young Hal was able to see her, or if that was revisiting a memory or something else. Kind of got the impression it was revisiting a memory. Yeah, I but thought then so too. I got the impression that it was a little bit because as she was falling into the hole, then she shouted out to Hal to come find her in the future. Young Hal looked in her direction, so it was almost as though he could hear her. That's a very good point. Side note: Find me in the future is now how I say "see you later." <laughs> <laughs> And when Hal found her originally, the first thing he called her was his girl. Well, I got the impression that was how he talked to everyone. It, yeah, it could have been, but it could have been because he knew who he was looking for. So, did you look up the cast? Because I've got to say, I haven't. Uh, right, before you look up the cast, is there anyone that you recognised or could put a name to? I feel certain I recognised Calcifer, but I don't know who it was. By which I mean, like, when it started speaking, I thought, that voice is familiar. There's two that I think should be fairly familiar. One of which, obviously, is Calcifer. Really? I told you not to look it up, you fucker. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't, that I couldn't was stop. terrible I had... poker face there. <laughs> I had no one. I, I didn't recognise anyone. So, for, really? for those who don't have the Wikipedia wow. article in front of you, Howl is by Christian Bale, which I thought was an absolutely fantastic piece of voice acting. Yeah. Yeah, he didn't um, overgrate that. No, not at all. He was very smooth and silken in his delivery. It was none of his uh, Christian Bale as Batman type gravelly delivery. Josh, Josh Hutchison as Markle. He was in the Hunger Games, wasn't he? Uh, I have no idea. I think so. But Calcifer is Billy Crystal. Ah, Jenna Malone, who was Letty, was also in the Hunger Games. Who was Letty? Um, Sophie's sister. Oh, right. Yeah, she's only in the very start. Ah, yes. Josh Hutchison was Peter in... Uh... Yeah. Were there two different voice actors for cursed 90-year-old Sophie and young Sophie? Yes. Because they just have someone putting on a voice. Okay. Emily Mortimer was young Sophie. I recognise her face, but I can't place her. Uh, Gene Simmons played Sophie. The old Sophie, sorry. One of the um, recurring themes through the film is that Sophie's curse weakens, I guess, at certain points. So she becomes more semi-young. Yeah, when her love for Hal comes through. Acts of selflessness. Yeah, selflessness and passion. Oh, that's another face I remember. Madame Sulemin. Sulemin, the king's king's sorcerer. She was the mother from Meet the Parents. Ah, okay. A fantastic cast. She's also the mother of Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, there you go. Jean Simmons, who played old Sophie, very, very famous actress, Mm. was also in Star Trek The Next Generation. I've started looking this up, and in the Japanese dub, it was the same person for young Sophie and old Sophie. Yes. I wonder if that worked better or worse. I think that would depend on the skill of the voice artist. Yeah, that's, it's a challenge, certainly. I am drastically unqualified to say. Cause... When I first started watching, I thought that young Sophie's delivery was a little bit odd, but then when you get to know her character a bit more, actually it fits her perfectly. Yeah, she's very mousy, she's a bit of a shut-in, she lacks self-confidence. That that's such a really that's a really good cast. Such a good lineup. I should have got Billy Crystal. Once you realise it's Billy Crystal, he does sound as a hint of Miracle Max to him. I may need to go back and rewatch, knowing that Christian Bell is how you can't pin him that voice down to any character I've seen him as in a movie. I thought Hal was an extremely effective representation of what a wizard might be like. If that makes any sense. Aloof, shut off, concerned with the world, but not wanting to get too involved. Catastrophically well, vague. Thing. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, that's one of the things, actually, that I noted down, because he's charming, but also slightly menacing. And he also has extremely important priorities that don't seem normal. The whole bit when Sophie tidies up the bathroom and moves his uh, beauty potions around and he comes back down and she's basically turned him ginger and he basically has a breakdown and starts oozing green slime out of his pores. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a hell of a tantrum. That was a really good tantrum. I'd forgotten about that bit. Yeah, it's one of those things of like, well, clearly this is fantastically important, but it's unclear if that's because... Howl is just tremendously vain, or if there's some magical reason that it's important that he have, be blonde. And then there was our first bit of what I would consider fan service that I've seen in any of these movies, and that was Howl's towel falling off. Do you try saying that quick, Howl's towel? <laughs> and there was anime butt. I don't know, their standards are slipping. They should be able to sell their product without having anime butts in it. <laughs> One of the biggest changes between the film and the book is actually about the character of Sophie. In the book, she accidentally keeps enchanting things. By speaking to them. Hmm. So she enchants a hat by talking to it and say, oh, you'll need to go and marry money. And her mother ends up wearing it and marrying a really rich man. <laughs> she, um, with Mr. Turniphead, by speaking to him, as she pulls him out of the bush, she brings him back to life. And then later on in the, in the book as well, she gives him a hundred times speed. It, and uh, she brings her walking stick to life as a magic wand. Is this because Book Sophie is also a wizard and just doesn't realise it? Or is it just because she's knocking around a load of wizard stuff? No, it's because she's a, she's a witch and has no idea. Hmm. I always thought that was a fun idea in fiction. What, someone that has all this power and doesn't know about it? Yeah, it's something... Well, I think we've talked about it before. It's something that I wanted to happen in the Star Wars prequels and then didn't really. Everything's just a happy coincidence. Well, it's a little bit like Rey if she goes on her discovery in episode 7 where she Mm. basically keeps accidentally learning how to use the force off people. (laughs) Like Anakin being a really good pod racer because he's actually got super fast Jedi reflexes. Yeah, let's not talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was just because George Lucas wanted another wing on Skywalker Ranch. I'll tell you a book that this reminded me of, and it's possibly just because it's What If There Was a War and Wizards Existed, is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Never even heard of it. No. No, it's uh, several years old. It was a big, fat book. It was kind of like set in alternate universe Britain where magic exists, and it's the Napoleonic War, I think. Like, specifically the Peninsular War. So one of the things that they have a wizard do is just create an illusory fleet just off the coast of France, so they're misdirecting all their uh, naval resources. At another point, he just talks to some soldiers and says, what's the one thing you want magic to do? And they say, uh, fix our boots, please. Have either of you seen or read the book of Stardust? I've seen the movie. I started it while I was at home with the parents and then left it there by mistake and haven't continued. Because there's quite a bit of that that reads across to this. What kind of thing? The falling star element providing long life. The blurring of fantasy and historical settings. Mm. Uh, and certainly in the book, uh, sort of the the portal between the real world and the fantastical world. Being so innocuous, like a hole in the fence. Yeah. Let me just have a quick look at when Stardust came out. So the Stardust film came out in 2007, which is three years after Howl's Moving Castle. As long ago as that? Oh. Uh, whereas the book of Stardust came out in 1999, and the book of Howl's Moving Castle came out in 1986. So the book of Howl's Moving Castle is by far the oldest, then the book of Stardust, then the film Howl's Moving Castle. I don't know if you necessarily draw a line of causality there, though, because it's a lot of things that are quite well-rooted in pre-existing culture. Like, a note that I wrote down was just that Calcifer and Howl are like Ariel and Prospero in some ways. Or for that matter, Faust and... Oh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce that name. 
you know, the guy whose name starts with M. I'm going to say Mephisto, but I think that's wrong. Anyway. It's a, na- it's a name that begins with N that sounds somewhere in the region. Point yeah, is. If, if Nathan's wrong, correct us in the comments below. <laughs> wherever you hear this, comments below are probably an appropriate place. <laughs> I look forward to in the year 2035 reading someone say it was Mephistopheles, not Mephisto, mate. <laughs> Mr. Mistopheles? We ended up in cats or something. It's possible that's what I'm remembering. I haven't seen cats. I understand it's about some cats. I haven't seen cats, but I have seen Team America World Police where one of the characters was <laughs> raped by Mr. Mistopheles. <laughs> Mr. Mistopheles. That's why I can't trust actors. <laughs> that's a very, very big genre shift. <laughs> So do we think there's anything from Howl's Moving Castle that's kind of crept out into the wider world? Or is it more of a, a distillation of lots of sort of pre-existing fantasy elements? I think it may be that pre-existing fantasy element that's crept in. And it's, it's just a story with these tropes sewing through it. So it feels familiar because there's familiar ideas in it rather than yeah. it having it had a direct influence on other things we may have or that may have been created since yeah i'd say that's it i don't i didn't recognize it and i didn't have any oh that's where this is from moments when i was watching this hmm. fair, the, i think like a lot of the gibbs me it's slipped under the radar i'd never even heard of it until we put the list together yeah it seems like they're extremely popular with a small number of people which i think is understandable because i think we've all really enjoyed this whole little arc hmm. yeah they've definitely got quite a a small but hardcore dedicated fan base. It's one of them genres that if you pick up something like Spirited Away, you might not go back and look at some others. But if you were to pick up How's Moving Castle, you'd probably go, yeah, I'd, I'd watch another one of those. Now, it's not too fantastical to make you go, eh, which Spirited Away might do. Yeah, it's kind of fantastical without being you know, batshit crazy. Yeah, whereas... Spirited Away probably makes a lot more sense to a Japanese audience. Yeah, I guess it's that Spirited Away was a fairy tale, whereas this is historical fiction, albeit it's not real history. Yeah, alternate history. Yeah. The pacing and structure of of this film are more similar to a a normal, in inverted commas, film. I did come away from this with a lot of questions, though. I mean, some of which we've answered just by trying to discuss it here today, but... uh, like, I did not pick up that Hal was... I knew that he had multiple personas behind the different doors that his castle led to, but I did not get that they were on opposite sides of the war at any point. Did not the fact that the two guys that came and knocked at the door and asked for two different people in two different uniforms? I thought one of them were army and one of them were sailors. <laughs> and I assumed that they were both reporting to the same office, like, yeah, we tried both these guys and, only, and neither of them turned up. What other questions have you got? Have you got them written down or anything specific or more general ones? I did have written down just in all caps, who are you? Question mark, question mark, question mark. And the answer, well, the, the prelude to that was um, the animated scarecrow turnip head. <laughs> like 60 seconds before the end of the film gets his curse broken and says oh thanks for that I'm the prince of the neighbouring kingdom I'll go and end this war now bye <laughs> yeah he was I'm the like, MacGuffin what? that the war was being fought over now, he was much more of a, an obvious MacGuffin in the book did he have a crown well the whole idea was King's brother Justin had gone missing and Howell had been retained to go and find him because uh, it was he had never been mentioned up until that point. Like we had absolutely no idea what the war was about in any sense. No, again, I think you've just missed a bit because there was a section where they were talking in the crowd saying that the prince had been kidnapped 
and that's why they were going to war. Yeah. I think you've just missed this. Did I, I just skip over off. them? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's probably a lack of a combination of lack of sleep and an excess of heat. <laughs> I think it was probably also trying to watch it on this particular app that does not save progress, so you just have to scroll through. Uh, yeah, remember how you find far where you, you are. Yeah. Not handy. Uh, I actually thought that wasn't a like directorial decision to have the war be completely meaningless from beginning <laughs> to end. Which, when I thought it was a parallel for World War One, seemed appropriate. I also thought it made Suleiman, who's... Is it Suleiman? Solomon? Suleiman. Who's kind of a villain throughout and a Machiavellian Grand Vizier type figure. Even more sinister when at the end she just goes, oh, I guess we should just finish this war now because I'm bored of it. Yeah. yeah, she was super creepy. Comes across as a nice little old lady in a chair and then turns out to be a colossal bitch. What was with the Children of the Corn, though? That all kind of looked like a young how. What, in the, the vision that she showed Sophie? Yeah. Her three attendees. Oh, those ones. Yeah, that was a little bit odd. They were never explained. But then neither were the uh, the tar babies that the Witch of the Waste used. Yeah. Here's another question I had. Why did the Witch of the Waste curse Sophie in the first place? Was it just that she randomly ran into her and didn't like the look of her face? Or? She knew that she'd been with Hal, and that's why she Well, no, her. she knew that someone from that shop had been with Hal, and it was actually Sophie's sister. But she went to the shop, found Sophie there, and thought that Sophie was Letty. Which was in the film, but wasn't enormously clear. That I've got that more straight in my head from the way it's told in the book. But the witch thought that Sophie was Letty. And therefore out of what romantic jealousy. Yeah. Because when she wanted Hal's heart, she literally wanted his heart. Yeah, exactly. They used to date, and then Hal realised she wasn't a pretty woman. Not that Hal was shallow or anything. Yeah, there is kind of an unfortunate ongoing theme of physically attractive equals good. A howl is so shallow that if he was a puddle, you wouldn't be able to drown in him. But yes, I think there is certainly a, a, a fair element of physical attractiveness equaling spiritual attractiveness, if that's quite the right word. I mean, I'm, you can't really um, lay, the, lay that entirely at the foot of this, because, yeah, that's a perennial feature. Yeah, it, it's the Disney equation. Good equals pretty. Ugly equals bad. You go through Disney films, and like, the heroines are pretty, the witches, the wizards, like, the all the bad guys are ugly. That's that's the trope, and that's what we're all spoon-fed from Disney from a young age. Yeah, most um, distressingly in Aladdin, of course. <laughs> yeah, creepy old man. Although then, I guess, inverted in Shrek, but that only works because of the expectation. It was both in front of the tropes. Yeah. Yeah, but then you've got John Lithgow's character, whose name escapes me at the moment. <laughs> Lord Farquhar. Lord, oh, Lord Farquhar, who, well, whilst not necessarily ugly, certainly has his physical flaws... But a very chiselled features face. And a teeny tiny baby body. <laughs> so, given that this was the last film that we're watching in this series, where do you think it fits in in terms of your enjoyment? I think, from our arc of Ghibli's, I think this is my favourite. I really enjoyed this movie. I would say this is the film that I enjoyed watching the most in the entire series. I, yeah, I wouldn't put it far off that. I think I would put it below Mononoke. I'm just going to try and look back through our list now so I don't... Um... Get too much recency effect. Do you really put it below Alien 2? Or do you put it above Aliens? So we had, what, The Aliens, four films, The Mad Maxes, The Ghostbusters, and The Ghiblies. The Ghiblies. The Ghibli. (laughs) (laughs) Damn it, you beat me to it. I was going to use that. Or The Giblets. (laughs) Is that what they call their short films? It's the trailers. (laughs) I think I would probably rate Mononoke and Nausicaa 1 and 2. Yeah? 
it's very difficult for me to compare like Howl's Moving Castle and Alien. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, would I rather go on a roller coaster or eat a delicious steak? <laughs> go on a steak whilst uh, eating a delicious roller coaster. <laughs> what well, the question? The question it actually asked was, which did you enjoy more? Yeah, so it's not asking you to compare them because they're so different. Yeah, so I'd say I enjoyed Howl's Moving Castle a lot more than Alien, but I think Alien is a better work. It's a magnificent yeah. vase that I admire in a museum and I'm terrified of. <laughs> Which is why it's my time capsule choice. Well, that's the thing. You can appreciate the uh, the artistry of something without necessarily appreciating the painting. You know, if you can see the, the crafting that's gone into it and the way it works together, yeah. even if it's not your cup of tea. Your particular taste, yet you can see that the skill that's gone in behind it. Which is kind of what I said about Fury Road at the time, although I slightly regret it because I keep going back to Fury Road. Like That's you stuck do. in my memory. In a way that other films in this series have not like Mad Max 2 has kind of gone from my brain <laughs> in yeah in hindsight Mad Max 2 is apart from the odd little bits like the titanium boomerang it's a bit of a nothing film looking back on it whereas at least at least Mad Max 1 we were all like oh my god it was awful <laughs> it's stuck in that that horrible horrible middle ground it's like the the inverse bell curve where if something's really bad you remember it and something's really good you remember it whereas if it's just mediocre it's like... it really drops off yeah i find i remember ghostbusters one a lot better than i remember ghostbusters two which yeah. it seems like it might be the opposite of how it was for you guys i don't know i think you're right though. i think that may be because ghostbusters two is more of a commercial movie whereas i think ghostbusters one still has that diehard almost independent movie kind of feel to it it was kind of more self-standing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't rely on something that had come before to give it meaning and direction. Something I thought we could do for while we're talking about rounding up the series is if I give you a scenario, you choose a film from this list that you would choose for that scenario. Yeah, let's go for Does it. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I only had two written down, so maybe you can think of some while we're discussing this. One is... It's about 2pm on Boxing Day. Family are all sitting around the TV, but everyone's lost the will to control the remote. All of these films are concurrently showing on different channels. Which one do you turn to? Mm. What does your family consist of? Well, whoever you would normally have around on Boxing Day. So, uh, oh shit, that, that put kids in the room. Are you talking about all the films that we've watched this series, or are you going to give us a short list? No, all of them. All of them. I mean, this may tell, say more about what we do on Christmas than, than the films. If the family's round and the kiddlings are allowed, around, then that would kind of rule out the Mad Maxes and the aliens for me. Maybe Ghostbusters as well. I think I would probably settle for something from Ghibli, and I would probably go for House Moving Castle. I would Castle. go for House Moving Castle. I was thinking maybe Ghostbusters 1, but then maybe that's because in my family there's a big gap between the two-year-olds yeah. and the uh, 20-year-olds. It's a, Ghostbusters are PG, right? It's not particularly scary there are just some scary points it depends how sensitive your kids are i suppose scenario two i wrote down was yourself from the past needs a film recommendation the provisio is that they can then not watch any other film in this series (gasps) how far in the past what age me am i talking to you in april of 2016 so just before we did this oh right okay um I, I guess you'll also need to then retroactively forget all the other ones you've already seen. <laughs> um, fuck. It does mean that I won't have to watch Mad Max 1 ever again. Well, you'll have forgotten that you have watched it, so you might independently choose to watch it again. Shit. Although I guess it's 30 years old, what are the chances? <laughs> I think I'm about to have some sort of internal dichotomy and possibly an embolism. 
<laughs> you would shake your own hand from the past and cease to exist. Yeah. I'd probably just put my own past self out of its misery. <laughs> but then who would build the time machine, Paul? That's <laughs> <laughs> what you're for, Nathan. <laughs> I'm not sure that once your science power beard grows back, I can see they're trying to stroke it. It's difficult. I can only use the very tips of my fingers now to... Dan's is still longer than yours. I had to trim mine back. It was getting too heavy and matted around the bottom. Oh, I think out of all of these films, to that April 2016 poll, say, you can only watch one of these ever, I would still have to go for Aliens. I fucking love that film. (laughs) I really, 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 really enjoyed the Ghibli stuff, especially the ones that I hadn't seen. But Aliens is just... Just so far up there are my hindsight films. That is definitely the one by far that um, had the most, oh, that's where this is from moments. It was like almost on a par with Casablanca for me in that scene. <laughs> yeah, there were. It was definitely that sort of film. That's why we set up the podcast. Yeah, that's true. So on the grounds that we undertook this whole project to understand what people would admit to saying when they made jokes... You'd probably have to go for Alien 2. <laughs> Game or over, aliens. man. Game over. <laughs> They're in the walls. They're in the walls. I would possibly say Fury Road. That was what I was torn between. Between that and Aliens. Because I've really enjoyed Fury Road as well. I also really liked the cinematography of it. It was beautifully shot. The only thing that the thing that I was torn with is probably Princess Mononoke because based on having seen that, which was completely new to me, I'm probably gonna go and look up some other Studio Ghibli or other related artists' work. I don't know if there's more of these in the how close we've come to the to the present day. I guess is what I'm saying by virtue of the fact that, admittedly, in the terms of this weird time travel wizard bargain I created, you can't. I can't then watch the other four or five, but there'll <laughs> hopefully be more that I would otherwise not have gone out to see. Like I probably would have got around to watching Fury Road eventually without a time traveler to tell me to do so. Do either of you guys have any film recommendation scenarios? Or is that a bit of a steep demand for 10 o'clock on a summer's day? I think that would require a bit more prior thought. Yep, okay then. Definitely. Plus, I think you've you've upped the bastard quotient quite high with your second one, so <laughs> I think we'll leave it there. Fair enough then. We'll leave it to the listener to decide what their uh, recommendations to their future self, future, future past, their past selves would be. If you had to destroy one movie from this list and erase it from time... Which would it be? Aliens 4. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people would agree yeah. with that. I mean, no disrespect to, to Joss. I liked it more than he did. <laughs> <laughs> but if you take out Mad Max 1, which was the film I probably had the least fun watching, there's not going to be a Mad Max 2, 3, and 4. Yeah, it was only because Mad Max 1 was such a commercial success. Yeah, and for that matter, you're probably not going to have a lot of modern action film sensibilities. Whereas I think if Alien 4 was erased from the timeline, the only thing that would happen is that someone else would have made Alien 4 and done an equally bad job. Yeah. We would have just got Prometheus early. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's about us wrapped for the season. Yeah, how long are we off? That's a good question. One we have yet to decide the answer to. (laughs) Oh, right, okay then. A couple of months at least, I would have thought. A nice summer break. I think it's fair to say that we will return in the autumn. 
Now, do we want to discuss what we're going to do next series now, or are we going to... I think we can give a, a, a little taste, maybe not go too deep with it. So hopefully, well, we hope... Uh, no, try to think how to word this. One quarter portion. <laughs> One quarter portion. Simon Pegg. is full of eels. Oh, no, wait, I just understood what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Well done, Nathan. <laughs> he can be taught. Don't worry, listeners. We'll make sure Nathan's back up to speed again when we return in the autumn. We're going back to a, the warm embrace of Joss Whedon. Something very close to mine and Dan's hearts. Fortunately, not too close, because that would be involve piles of dust on the floor, as the show did. If you haven't guessed already, we are going to have a little look at Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So when we return, we will be having a a preview episode as we have with the last two series where the plan will be to discuss uh, everything that Nathan thinks he knows about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and is probably wrong about. I look forward to your feedback. <laughs> what we found is a, uh, a fan-based list of the best 15 episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer from all seven series. So the plan is to watch those one a week and discuss, as we have done, and try and convince seven series into one and then Nathan might have to have a bit of extra work in between to fill in some of the blanks. Additional reading. Yeah, we may have to do uh, an episode for two or three episodes if they are the punchline or the setup for the dramatic reveal at the end of the season finale or something. Yeah, there's quite a few that are that, the ones that either picks the second part of a two-part episode. Yeah, we're going to have to best of both worlds part two it. Yeah, exactly. But hey, that's something for us to worry about and then you to enjoy or pick massive holes in afterwards but for season 2 of Remedial Nerding that is us signing off I will see you in the future that's it for this week peeps tune in next time for more Remedial Nerding to be like being 15 all over again just without furious masturbation <laughs> I was I was hoping for raging <laughs> hormones there Dan <laughs> I mean let's just say without a lot of things that happened in the early 2000s how the fuck are we going to end off that with a box of tissues podcast over <laughs> <laughs>